Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is the writer and podcaster Elizabeth Day. During a very successful period at newspapers such as the Sunday Telegraph and the Mail on Sunday and the Observer, where she won Feature Writer of the Year at the Press Awards, Elizabeth also started writing the first of seven books to date, five fiction and two non-fiction. Her podcast series How to Fail with Elizabeth Day began in 2018 and continues to be one of the top charting podcasts. She hosts Open Book for Radio 4 and is married to her second husband, Justin. We're also going to hear from the nutritionist Rhiannon Lambert. Today, she's going to be talking about bloating and IBS. Okay, let's go chat to Elizabeth. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for coming on The Midpoint. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan. She said in an embarrassing way at the top of the interview. <laughs> well, that's that's likewise and, and a great admirer of what you've built with your whole kind of genre of failing and how to fail in terms of your podcast and your writing, of course, as well, which we shall get on to. But it's 9.45-ish in the morning when I'm speaking to you. Is this a good time of day to speak to a writer? Are your creative juices flowing? <laughs> what a great question. It's not a good time of day necessarily for me. I mean, it's good in the sense that it gets me out of bed and I'm not watching an episode of The Real House housewives to ease me into the week <laughs> but I tend to be someone I get going in the afternoon actually like I like getting up and getting out of bed but but creatively speaking I do my best writing I think in the afternoons I'm not a late night person I'm basically just someone who loves sleep I think we're coming to terms with that realization so I can deal with an early morning but I tend to do most of my writing at the midpoint, ironically, of the day. <laughs> <laughs> because that's that's a hard thing. If you're truly freelance, like you are, in the sense that you control everything, when you record, when you write, it, there is, you know, there is a possibility that you could be somebody who just lazes around in the morning and doesn't have structure. Have you found it easy to create structure in your life? Since you, because in your early part of your career, you were kind of beholden to newspapers and deadlines and things like that. Yes, very much so. Um, I think I'm lucky in that I am quite a self-disciplined and motivated person. So, and also because I have a terror of a deadline and a terror of missing a deadline. So I, generally speaking, that fear is enough to get me doing it and to structure my week. But I did have an interesting transition because you're right, I started out in traditional print journalism and on Sunday newspapers. And there was a real culture of presenteeism on some of those newspapers where you had to be seen to be staying very late at night on a Friday night and a Saturday night. And it always really frustrated me because I felt like I'd got my work done and I'd like to go home. And I think that in offices, there tends to be quite a lot of time wastage or there was pre-pandemic. There was a lot of sort of chatting and getting cups of tea and then eventually doing your work. Whereas when I went freelance, I suddenly realised that I didn't have any of that. There were no water cooler moments. It was just me and my laptop. And as a result, I actually got my work done so quickly that I would generally file my pieces in the morning. This is what I, I worked for The Observer and I went, I was allowed to work from home. And I'd write my pieces in the morning and then I'd feel guilty because in the afternoon I didn't have anything to do, but I would feel like I should be working. And that took a really long time to come to terms with. And it was the weirdest thing because I thought I'd immediately just love working from home. But I, I spent a lot of it feeling guilty. A few questions kind of have ignited in my brain from what you've just said there. One of them, which is completely tangential, is that we're speaking in the week that a report is going to be released about an experiment or a kind of study of 60 businesses that have done four day working weeks to see whether or not productivity has actually diminished. Apparently, the word on the street is it hasn't at all. And actually, everybody's working hard. But the other thing is that you saying what you just said the, the water cooler moments the coffee cups all that stuff clearly is kind of time wasting but it's also human interaction isn't it and it's where you as a writer I suppose get ideas as well and you kind of see human foibles and and just hear little snippets that might add to the color of of what you're writing so there's swings and roundabouts isn't there yeah about losing that 
you're so right and that was the other thing that I struggled with when I started working from home is that sometimes the only human interaction I would have was with the checkout person at Sainsbury's and I realized that that needed to change and so actually how I got around it was I created a a, a quote-unquote journey to work for myself I would get up and I would go for a cycle ride and that would be my sort of morning commute and my interaction with the outside world and then I'd feel much more creatively stimulated and inspired because you're so right that if you're in the business of what we do which is understanding humans really you have to spend time with your fellow women and men and and I often say I'm sometimes asked for advice on how to write books and I think daydreaming is an incredibly important part of that like sitting on the bus and staring out of the window you're not wasting time there you're actually understanding more about the world that we live in and the four-day week thing is so interesting because I've just read a book by Bernie Sanders it's Bernie Sanders's new book and he talks about how capitalism is defunct and we need a new system and that part of the issue with capitalism is that it was meant to be a smarter way of working but actually it just means underprivileged people work harder and harder and harder for the rest of us and he's a massive advocate of the four-day week as well because his whole point is if we're living in this era where we're inventing incredibly smart self-driving cars and AI robots they should be enabling us to work less hard mm-hmm. or or to work as effectively, more effectively, in fact, but spending less time just in front of a screen in an office. Well, John Maynard Keynes, the the economist, um, economy A-level coming into its own oh, here, so he predicted that our grandchildren or his grandchildren would be working 15-hour weeks. Um, wow. And that's clearly not happened um, because of technology. Obviously, he was looking at kind of how technology would help but kind of diminish that. But that's, that's obviously not happened. The pandemic's thrown into kind of the air, hasn't it? All kinds of working practices. So so I'm I'm not intr- intruding in any writing this morning. I'm, I'm You're not. You're okay. And also because I'm about to publish a book. It's coming out at the end of March it's called Friendaholic but because I'm about to publish a book it means that I'm in the promo phase and so I don't actually have time to write a new book at the moment which is probably my husband said the other day he's like I really think you need to be writing again because (laughs) because it's sort of my my meditation it's kind of my therapy to write and I think he could pick up on the fact that I was feeling quite hectic and frenetic. He was like, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, as somebody who uh, had her first book published last year, I, I kind of I'm with him on the sense that the, the writing part of it was actually the lovely bit. The selling the book, as in doing all the promos and all that, that was the really, really hard bit. I mean, largely because mine was a memoir as well. So it's having to kind of dredge up and talk about it all the time. But it's it's I know it sounds ridiculous and people are going to get tiny violins out, but it's quite exhausting to keep repeating yourself isn't it all the time it is and you're right that it's very vulnerable if you've written something personal the act of writing and again it sounds stupid but I imagine it's a bit like childbirth you forget every single time you write a book that anyone else is going to read it (laughs) and so I don't know about you Gabby but for me it was this thing of it was just me and the page and I would go to a cafe every Monday was my writing day and it'd be incredibly sort of calming and like untangling of my thoughts. And then suddenly you realise, oh, it's coming out into the world and other people are going to read it. People who don't know me are going to read it and be confronted with my most intimate thoughts. And, and interpret that it in the way interpret- that they... I know. It's a, it's a very unique feeling and I do, and it, and it jangles your nerves somewhat. So I'm in that phase now, which you know only too well. And at the age of 44, has any of that got any easier or does it make more sense? Can you, can, you know, do you have a way of compartmentalising things in your life mm. better than you ever did? I think what's got easier, it's that Malcolm Gladwell thing of having put in 10,000 hours. And once you've done it enough times, I now understand two things. One, that I can cope with it, that I've developed the resilience required. But two, that the chances are I can actually do it. Like, I'm not relying on my inner critic to tell me whether I can do things. I feel I definitely can because I've put in enough practice and enough work to ensure that I have the expertise. And so that's very, very helpful. And I definitely, I don't know if I compartmentalise, but I've definitely got better at metabolising criticism and understanding that if someone responds negatively or positively, it's generally a reflection of their 
personal outlook. It's the life that they have lived and what they have been through and the baggage they might be carrying. And that's what they're projecting. And I've got much better understanding that, which I think means I've I've got, I'm more level in terms of how I receive outside judgment. Having said that, the only way I can be that level is because I have four or five people in my life who are sort of cornerstone people for me. And I trust their judgment and their opinions. And that's who I go to because you can't just be out there doing whatever you want and you're doing your own thing with no regard for how it's going to be received because I do want to sell books and I do want people to listen to my podcasts. But I have, you know, my husband, Justin, my best friend, Emma, they're people who I really trust and value. And I know that they have my best interests at heart. So I know that if they say, I'm not sure about this, then I take that on board. But I've got much better at not taking on board online trolls and people who just want to tag you in a negative review on Instagram. Well, they're much more knee-jerk reactions as well, aren't they? And uh, your definitely. cornerstone people have got a, a bit more depth and th- of, th- of thought about you and what, what this is about. And and that, I think, is a, a maturity. It's very rare to find people in their 20s who are able to, you know, to, to do that. I certainly wasn't able to do that in my 20s. I took all criticism incredibly personally yeah. and tried to work out, you know, kind of how I could please everybody. So I, I guess that brings us nicely onto Me how too. to fail, doesn't it? Because yes. that is that is what we're talking about, essentially, isn't it? That you aren't going to please all the people all the time. Where was it? Where was it born from initially? How to fail? So it was a specific time in my life. I, like you, spent my 20s trying to please everyone else. And that uh, had a hangover, a substantial hangover into my 30s. And I ended up in a series of romantic relationships, long-term romantic relationships. I was basically in a relationship from the age of 19 to 36. And what I failed to do in those relationships was understand myself. And I feel guilty about that now because I could have taken some time to really understand who I was and what I needed. But I was so busy outsourcing my sense of self to my romantic other half and to the other people in my life in order to please them, in order to be likeable, that I ended up in the wrong relationships. And to cut a long story short, I got divorced at the age of 36. And I was then single again, and I had tried and failed to have children. I'd had unsuccessful fertility treatment, and I still wanted children, but it's a very difficult time for a woman to try and find a family for herself in her late 30s. So I got into a relationship uh, probably too quickly with a very lovely but much younger man, and that ended three weeks before my 39th birthday. And that was my lowest point, because I think... All of the things that I had done confronted me at that point. It was like the emotional scaffolding I'd erected around my divorce just came tumbling down and I really felt like a failure. And at the same time as this was happening, I was carrying on professionally. So I was still, I was a star feature writer for The Observer and I'd written the first of my novels. And so on paper, it looked like I had things sorted, but internally I felt completely different and I really did feel like a failure. And I started listening to a lot of podcasts at that time because I found them really helpful. I was looking for answers myself and I couldn't listen to music because it made me feel too heartbroken. So those things came together and I'd become quite tired of doing the sort of celebrity interviews I was doing for newspapers because they were very formulaic. And you would know that, Gabby, because I know that you've been on both sides of that dynamic. And I just wanted to have a space where I could do the kind of interviews that I found interesting that were about people's humanity and people's vulnerability. And selfishly, I wanted answers about how to survive failure and how other people did it. And so that's why I thought of starting a podcast called How to Fail. And I and I felt that it would only last for one season and I would interview eight guests and they would give me some answers and it would exist as I wanted it to exist in the world. And then this amazing thing happened, which is that thousands of other people listened to that first season and and now it's it's one of the greatest gifts of my life and now it's uh in its 16th season almost and I've met some amazing people and got some really wise answers (laughs) yeah so you now know how to fail (laughs) I think I do I think I do well I know that failure isn't terminal Mm -hmm. and and that's an amazingly reassuring thing I know that and I know that it happens to everyone no matter how sorted someone might seem on the outside and how successful they might appear. Everyone has had to deal with failure at some point in their lives. And that's also very comforting. 
and will continue to. Doesn't matter exactly. if you think you've been through some terrible things that appear to on the outside to be failure, whether it's a divorce or you know we're we're largely now being listened to by people who are in the middle of life, which is a time often for reflection, isn't it? Because you, you've got a bit of space in your head and there will be moments that they'll have looked back and think, well, that was a big failure. That job didn't work out. That relationship didn't work out. But that doesn't mean that going forwards now, there isn't going to be another failure as society might or the rest of you know humanity might see it. It's, it's how we deal with it, I guess, that, that your guests have taught you. Definitely. Just because you fail does not make you a failure. You're right that the test of character is in how we respond to it. Um, and I think that thing that you were saying about, I mean, what is what is failure ultimately? It, it took me a long time to answer that question. And the definition that I came up with is that broadly speaking, failure is what happens when something doesn't go according to plan. But then you have to question the plan. And very often the plan has been given to us by social conditioning, by patriarchal history by a lot of dead white men who we might not want to live our lives like that but when we fail to live up to some mythical standard often we internalize that and so really I'm about dismantling that idea that life should be a certain way because personally speaking my life hasn't turned out the way that I thought it would when I was younger it's been so much better than that and so much more interesting and it's thrown me some curveballs and I can look back and be grateful for that. And that's what I know now is when I go through something that's tough or that feels like a failure, I know that in the fullness of time, it will end up teaching me something if I want it to. It will yeah, end up it. having some meaning. Yes. How important do you think it is to be surrounded then by people who also adhere to that philosophy? Because, you know, are the voices that come to us, and I'm not just talking about online and, you know, the voices that come to us, whether it's parents, family, you know, extended friendship groups, you know, the pressure to conform to their idea of success is often what derails people from sticking to that narrative that actually this is just a lesson. Definitely. I think we have to protect our energies, if that doesn't sound too new age. Although, does it matter if it does? <laughs> no. Um, no. Woo woo <laughs> away. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, you're going to regret saying that. No. I, uh, I do think, and actually, the book that I've just written, All About Friendship, was a real journey of exploration for me on this very topic. Because with friendships, particularly I think with female friendships, we're socially conditioned to believe that they should last forever that if a friendship ends, it's in some way a failure. And I don't think that we have that same conditioning about romantic relationships. It's actually quite rare that we meet someone at school and then we're with them forever and we marry them and we're happy ever after. And there's a whole language around romantic breakup that there isn't around friendship breakup. And one of the things that I realized during the pandemic, and I think it's a realization that a lot of people had, was that the people that I was spending time with weren't necessarily the ones that were great for my energetic health and they would probably say the same but we felt that we had to be in it because we were friends so we had to like carry on being friends and actually I've realized now that friendships aren't failures just because they end that you can still have a really loving relationship with the memory of that friendship for who you both were at that time in your life and you've both evolved and grown and that's okay and we need to get more comfortable with that so in answer to your question I think it's hugely important to allow the energies and the thoughts in from other people that you really respond to and value and that make you feel good that uh, radiate positivity if that's what you're after but that's not to say that you have to eliminate everyone else from your life just that you should be aware of how they make you feel after you've had an interaction with them and then act accordingly and it's okay as my best friend Emma who's she's actually also a therapist which is a great combination <laughs> she um she talks about the power of a non-verbal boundary you don't actually have to verbalize everything you don't have to verbalize your boundaries you can just choose to step back and be a bit quieter and sometimes we all need to do that to protect our mental health that's so interesting because there are some friends who 
you get the feeling that they they need to have that contact otherwise as, as reassurance almost that they're still important in your life and other friends that you cannot see for you know years and just come back together for a bit and then go again and um i guess again going back to what you said before it also reflects what's going on in their lives and who they are and what they need and the the kind of human instinct to to try and take that on board it goes back to pleasing people exactly and one of the things that you know this it sounds weird when i say it but i'm really passionate about hopefully introducing a sort of language around friendship that makes these interactions easier for everyone one of the things that i think is really helpful to do is before you decide to be friends with someone there's a difference between being friendly and choosing to have a friendship so when you're in the early stages of being friendly with a mum at the school gates or someone you met around the water cooler at work or someone in yoga class, that's great. But I think it's really important to work out what they're expecting of a friendship and what your metric of friendship is. Because as you say, there are people who find it incredibly important to have a weekly phone call. They want a check in daily. Otherwise, they feel neglected. I'm not that person. I can't give you that. What I can give you and what I believe is more important is generosity of spirit. So I will always think the best of you. If you're my friend, I will be loyal to a four. I'll always think the best of you. And we don't actually have to have a phone call and we don't have to see each other that much. When we do, I know we'll be able to hit that relational depth really quickly and we'll be able to have that interaction without guilt and just with love. And so I think that's really important because I think a lot of people, and from my experience, women feel so much guilt all the time. And we just need to eliminate as much of that as possible as we can from life because it's a it's a bit of a wasted emotion. It's often not telling you the truth. No. And um, I guess midlife is as good a time as any to have a little friend yeah. detox then, isn't it? So is that what Definitely. the book's about? Is it about an, a, something that you experienced and having a bit of a cleanse, a yes, clear out? I don't want to make my sound sound, sound too awful because <laughs> <laughs> it was also about identifying how much I love my friends. But you're right it was the midpoint of my life and I just thought where am I spending my time and because I had this hangover of people pleasing generally if someone asked me to do something I'd say yes because I'd want to please them which is actually a very arrogant thing to say to to believe egotistically that you're going to that bring you're that pleasure. important to them <laughs> exactly um and as you were saying earlier my kind of closest friends never put those demands on my time they were so considerate and therefore I'd end up not seeing them as much, but I actually wanted to see them because they were the really nurturing ones. So there was definitely a rebalancing. And I would say it was a mutual detox actually, because at the point that you start to feel the friendship is more harmful than healing, the chances are that the other person feels that too. And, and that's what I discovered that actually I was able for the first time ever to have quite a grown up and mature friendship ending where we both express that to each other. And it's the first time I've ever done that. And it actually taught me a lot and felt so much better than what we often do, which is just fall out of people's lives without an explanation. We kind of ghost each other. So yes, there's been a, there's been a rebalancing, definitely. And one of the things I discovered through the research of the book is that there's been this incredible scientific study done by Robin Dunbar, who's basically like the friendship guru. And he famously came up with a number called Dunbar's number of 150, which is sort of, that's the amount of connections that a human brain can cope with. So it's the size of an average Christmas card list. It would be the size of a sort of biggish wedding, but it's, it's, it's the size, it's the group of people that you can have a human interaction that you know your connection with. And beyond that, we, we sort of lose our connection points. He, he finessed this idea and made it into a series of friendship layers. And in your innermost layer, he says you can have up to five really intimate friendships. If you fall in love or you have ki kids, that will cost you two of those friendships. Because the amount of time that we need to put into a friendship to make it meaningful, to make it a really close friendship, a 4am phone call friendship, that requires hours. And actually, you don't have as much time if you're pursuing other relationships. So I find that really interesting and actually quite liberating. It is really interesting. And it makes me think about couples as well, because you it's harder to cleanse if there's a couple 
who are you know part and often there's a there's a weight that isn't equal so the the, the male part of that couple or you know if it's a same-sex relationship there's one of those people that isn't necessarily as close to you as the other one so you kind of would be losing both or you can't you retain one and, and that and that becomes quite tricky as well I'm, my husband's got a lot of male friends that I'm not particularly friendly with the you know the wives not that I don't, there's nothing wrong with them. who are they name them no I'm kidding <laughs> but we just don't hang out you know yeah and it makes it he has you know nights where he just sees them which I think is great I love that whereas he's much more like we'll all go out and I said I haven't got time to have all those women now in my life they're not they're not part of my friendship group he seems to just have an infinite amount of time to keep keep pulling people in that's so interesting because most straight men hemorrhage friends in their midpoint and I wonder with your husband whether it's because of the sporting background that Mm. actually that's helped with the friendships. There's a team. There has to be a team. a team. That's so interesting. <laughs> well, but- it's interesting you say um, straight men because my son always says that his dad is the gayest straight man he's ever met. So um, that's... <laughs> what a compliment. <laughs> I know. So, so maybe it's that part of his personality. But he does love meeting new people. And I, you know, when you're on holiday, it's that classic uh, thing yeah. where you say... They're a really nice couple, but when we go home, we don't have to see them ever again, you know. Whereas he'll say, we'll go out sometime. And I always say to him later on, back in the hotel room, we won't. We'll never see them again. (laughs) I'm definitely more like you. And actually, and I think I don't have friendship groups. That's the other thing. So I... I'm not a former professional athlete, spoiler alert, um, and I've never had a team. I've never had a, a, a big group. I tend to really love, I'm sort of an introvert operating in an extrovert world. So I love one-on-one connection. So I have a lot of friends who I see individually and therefore I don't have enough time to endlessly expand that network because I can't just see a big group of people all at once. And I think that's that's also something that plays into how we pursue our friendships. It's a fascinating subject. It is really, because it does predicate at least a part of your happiness on the planet, doesn't it? Who who you have in your circle and how they operate with each other or whether they're operating in silos, you know, and you have kind of completely separate friendship groups. And I, I didn't expect to go so deep into that as well. It's such an interesting topic that we yes. haven't explored in midlife and midpoint. Oh, I'm, well, I'm so glad to be able to talk about it because... As you know, like having writing a book and then talking about it, as we've discussed, two separate things. But I feel like I've got all of this research that I need to yes. share with the world. And that thing about friendship being integral to the happiness of our lives is absolutely true. There's scientific basis in that. Not having any friends is as dangerous for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being obese. But fascinatingly, having too many friends is also bad for your health and can lead to higher incidences of depression. So yeah. it's actually about finding the happy medium. Well, you don't flinch when you hear, well, I certainly don't you know, these days, when I hear another, you know, kind of sadly a separation, you know, a midlife separation, because that kind of happens quite a lot when people get the empty nest syndrome and they look at yeah. each other and they're not quite sure where they're together anymore. You hear about couples going their separate ways, often quite amicably because they've kind of come to this conclusion. So I, I guess it's just an extension of that, isn't it? Looking at your life and exactly thinking exactly. about the future. Yeah. And I think the metaphor I came up with was volcanoes, that friendships can either be active volcanoes, they have an active part to play in your life, or they can be dormant, but they forever change the landscape that they find themselves in. And who's to say that volcano might become active again in your life? You just don't know. Like Life is long and, and, and we change and evolve all of the time. And so... Yes, I think of my friends as volcanoes. <laughs> and we, we, we got, we got on to friendship talking about kind of failings and then what you've learned from people that you've talked to and how they have processed their, their failings in, in life. And actually, sport is such a great teacher. And that is having had a life in sport and then a, a professional life in sport, married to a sportsman. Now I've spawned a sportsman um, and a sportswoman. And it's it's a constant throughout their lives. I've heard myself say, today, this match is going to be one of the best matches you'll look back on because, you know, you didn't play well and the learnings from this match will... And it's so true. You know, if you play a perfect game or a perfect match, you don't learn very much from those experiences. Exactly that. I like to say that all failure is data acquisition. If you choose to let it be. And we learn so much more from the mistakes And I compare, you know, I failed my driving test the first time. The second time I took that test, 
I knew that I had to put the handbrake on fully to avoid rolling back on a hill start. <laughs> you know, it's just, and and the key is to treat everything like that, to treat mm. everything as a learning experience. But I, it's why I'm so fascinated when I have sportsmen and women on the podcast, because a lot of them are so trained for any outcome that it's like speaking to like a failure a really sophisticated failure ai they're so (laughs) incredible to talk to you because they've just developed this mindset that enables them to cope and it's very very interesting when you talk to sort of athletes and i'm desperate to get andy murray on do you know him gabby yes i had one of my well i don't know him i haven't got his number in my phone sadly elizabeth but i had one of my best ever professional days with him i was interviewing him for a show called inside sport and we spent the day at roehampton he was training there and went in the gym with him and i've interviewed him a few times and he's just the most brilliant guy he's such a likable person got so much speaks so much sense you know he doesn't waste he's very efficient and in what he says but but there is emotion there but it's cloaked in this quite dour delivery which i i like and um i think he'd be brilliant on your podcast yes let's campaign for that let's campaign because that there was a documentary about him uh, that amazon documentary Mm, about when he had his hip surgery yes which was just i it just gave me a whole new level of respect because that's someone who's having to cope with the failure of his body as this extraordinary athlete and I found it completely riveting and actually it's why I love sporting documentaries as a whole I'm obsessed with Breakpoint at the moment on Netflix and um uh, Drive to Survive got me interested in Formula One which I thought was hitherto impossible but I just um yeah it's clearly the failure aspect that draws me do you think sports people from what you've learned speaking to them are are able to separate therefore their personal life and the failings that might happen there and and if we're calling them that whether it's divorce separation you know not not maintaining Mm -hmm. friendships and what happens in their professional life when they're on court on the pitch that's a really good question I think broadly speaking yes they are but it could also be because when I'm talking to them they're looking at those failures in retrospect so maybe they've I, I think with sports people what I've generally found is that they're very good at assimilating more quickly than the average person would do the lessons of failure and they're able to put it behind them and move on. But I've interviewed a couple. So Tom Daly, who came on recently and is just such a lovely man, spoke so movingly about losing his dad to a brain hemorrhage at a very, very young age and the impact that had on him. And he was able to to live alongside that grief as he still does and to go on and win a gold medal like that takes a very special kind of person the person who um i think was really honest maybe because he's not a sports person anymore is matthew saeed so he um was playing in in the olympics he was playing table tennis and one of his failures when he came on the podcast was that he he choked at the sydney olympics and he felt unbelievably humiliated and ashamed and like the worst failure because it happened on this global public stage. And he said the thing that got him through that was the thought that his parents still loved him. Like that's where he got to with it. He was like, whatever happens, my parents will still love me. And I was like, gosh, that's it was just made so my legs raw. tingle. Yeah. yeah, that's it, isn't it? If you can actually come to that conclusion in that moment, I think you're classed as wise. <laughs> Exactly. That's really quite profound. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So you, you're at an age now where you, you're getting things sorted. You know, you, you, you're 
garnering your wisdom. You're feeling like, well, it sounds like, you know, with all this experience you've had on your own podcast and your writing and, you know, all of your, your career, things must feel like you're hitting your Malcolm, as you mentioned, Malcolm Gladwell, you're 10,000 hours, you're in your stride. Does it, does it feel like that? big pause because on one level it feels like that in that I count myself incredibly privileged to do what I love and to love what I do and to be paid for it and to be able to make a living from it. Personally speaking it is a great sadness and will be a lifelong sadness that I have never had my own children and I have tried incredibly hard and it has been a very long and exhausting battle and anyone who has been through fertility issues will know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think that all of my work on failure has made me understand that that grief will be with me forever and it will forever change me. And that's okay, I can live alongside it because it's also taught me so much beyond the realms of what I thought I'd be taught in this lifetime. So in that respect, that's something I'm still working through, if I'm being really honest. I'm still processing that. You've written about having relationships with lots of children. You've got lots of godchildren and you've you've got other children in your life and, and you clearly give a lot to those children. But from what you've said there, that is the thing that perhaps you'll never completely be able... And, you know, grief is... I mean, we could talk for hours about grief and you never really ever get over losing and in I guess in your mind it is that loss of being a mother that you you'll probably always have um an interesting relationship with if not a settled one I think you're totally right and I think I compare grief to when you have a big pot of white paint and there's a little droplet of red paint that accidentally gets mixed in and it forever changes the colour of the paint. But it doesn't make it a worse colour. It just, it makes it a different one. And I think I just, like so many people, had, I just took it for granted in a way that I would have that conventional family life. And so the weird thing about fertility is that it's a loss that you're, you're mourning an absence in so many ways. So you're mourning a life that hasn't been lived and that's quite a tricky thing to pin anything on. It's very diffuse. And so therefore it, it surges up when you least expect it sometimes. Having said that, you're so right that I'm really lucky. I have loads of children in my life. At the last count, 13 godchildren. Um, and then I recently got asked by a very, very special 10-year-old if I would be his honorary sort of adult friend. <laughs> so I'm counting it up to 14 now. And I have three stepchildren and I have two nieces and I have a beloved cat. And there's so much love in my life. And there's also a lot of outlet in my life to have that kind of parental connection and I, and I hope it doesn't sound too self-aggrandizing, but I, I feel it with some of my listeners. Like I get really amazing messages from listeners of How to Fail who have felt less alone and clearer about life because of an episode or something that's been said. And that is so meaningful to me. I think I would really struggle if I didn't have that meaning somewhere in my life. So I'm very glad I have that. And you've written about this in, in Magpie in particular. There was the, an interesting triptych triumvirate the, the, the yeah. three women anyway who feature heavily in the book and motherhood is a kind of thread through through all of that and the longing for a child but also society's kind of perception of that mm -hmm. as well is that something that you have been able to kind of come to terms with through writing about what society thinks mm -hmm. and, and we've talked about at the beginning of the podcast about how it's other people's perceptions of failure that often affect our own feeling is that something that you do feel quite comfortable with now I don't feel fully comfortable with it and I'm definitely a work in progress and actually the way that I make sense of the world is to write and so Magpie was incredibly cathartic. It's a novel but the emotional truth at the heart of that novel is based in pure hard fact. Like it's based on a lot of stuff that I went through and I felt that no novel that I had ever read had accurately conveyed what fertility treatment was like to go through and I put a lot of that on the page and found it really cleansing like it was it was a really necessary thing for me to do I still struggle with the societal 
expectation around motherhood and also I might say the fetishization that idea that it elevates you to a realm of experience that is entirely exclusive that you can't possibly understand what love is until you have children things like that are very hurtful to hear I can totally understand why people say it because it's definitely I'm sure a unique kind of love but it marginalises my experience of the world because I've had lots of different experiences of love too. And I, I sort of struggle with that, but I do think that we're living now in an age, and I'm so happy that we are, where there are so many different versions of life and people are talking so much more about diversity of experience, which is brilliant and exactly as it should be, that I no longer feel like an outlier. What I hate the thought of which this is something that I'm really sort of grappling with right now. I hate the thought of someone looking at me 10 years from now and asking if I have children and the answer's no and them thinking either, oh, poor you, that's half a life or, well, you gave it all up for your career. And neither of those is true, but I just need to practice what I preach and understand that that's not only their projection, but my projection of what they might be thinking and that actually I need to let that go because all you can do is live your own life and be grounded in your own experience of it. True and I guess it, it will create a very different landscape for you as a midlife person going forwards because you certainly won't have an empty nest situation to deal with and no. physically there are different challenges aren't there. Um, I, I know from going through IVF that my perimenopausal symptoms came on probably a bit earlier because you've already done things to your hormones a little bit yeah. um, outside of their natural pattern. So have you had a look into kind of what, what's coming down the track, Elizabeth Day, <laughs> physically? <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely terrified. I'm terrified. <laughs> no, I, no I'm, I'm kidding. I do, again, I'm so grateful for women like you talking openly about what you've been through and the experience of this particular age. And I have people who are very close to me who are going through menopause right now. And so I also have that insight. And our conversations have been made much more open by living in 2023 when people are doing amazing work around these areas. And just as I've always been very passionate about bringing fertility conversations to the fore and speaking publicly about it. So I'm I'm so grateful that other people are doing that for the menopause. So yes, I have an expectation of what it'll be. <laughs> and I definitely feel like I'm I'm like I'm on the outer edges of it. Like I'm sort of scaling the contours right now. I I massively noticed hormonal shifts and changes in my menstrual cycle and and fertility medicine, as you know, makes you so hyper aware of what your body's doing. It really does. So I'm, I'm much more savvy and I therefore feel equipped and I know who to go to. And that's a really good thing. But if I can just get on my soapbox for a bit, the way quote unquote women's issues are marginalised, overlooked and diminished by mainstream medicine is absolutely outrageous to me. And it's not women's issues, it's it's human issues. And when I look at how many women are treated in the fertility medical world, it angers me so much because we're constantly made to feel like failures. We're constantly told that we're failing to respond to the drugs or we have an inhospitable womb or an incompetent cervix. This is language that carries real power and that a lot of us internalise. And it's the same thing, I think, with menopause, that so many women are made to feel that they're making it up, that they just, they're just they a bit confused, they just need a good night's rest. And it's just, it's gaslighting on an epic scale. And so that's why these conversations are so unbelievably important. The amount of people I've heard over the last year or so, you know, say that kind of and sometimes you know women who say I'm just going to plow on through this symptom you just wouldn't do that if it was anything else and a man certainly wouldn't just plow on through the symptoms when there is medicine and you know an intervention here that can really help you and has been proven to be safe anyway 
let's not go on that road for too much longer because um, I want to bring in uh, Rhiannon Lambert, who is an excellent nutritionist. Um, she herself has, has written a, a fabulous book about the science of food and it's it's brilliant. It's just a beautiful book, if not, you know, it's very informative, but also very beautiful. Uh, so Rhiannon, uh, thank you so much for coming back to The Midpoint. You were a great success with our listeners before. So I'm going to be um, asking you about some very specific areas today. But before I do, Elizabeth, have you got anything nutritionally that's kind of, you know, just whirring away in your mind? You want to ask Rhiannon, she'll know the answer. Oh my gosh, Rhiannon, there are so many questions I want to ask you. As like recently, when I was going through my latest bout of fertility medicine, I became so aware of the power of nutrition to sort of increase things like progesterone at necessary times. And I wish I'd spoken to you then. But uh, yes, one of my things is that I get, this is going to make, make me sound very sexy, psoriasis behind my ears. And I have tried eliminating dairy. I've tried various creams. Nothing's worked. So what would you suggest for that? Gosh, um, firstly, you've, you've got incredible wisdom to share with everyone, Elizabeth. And from hearing about your life and obviously being a big fan of, of the work that you've done as well, I just think sometimes in life when you go through so much stress, hormonal changes, fertility treatment, all of it, it all has a knock-on effect on the composition perhaps of our gut microbiota, so the bacteria that live within our gut. That in turn affects the gut-brain axis. And then when it comes to our skin, our skin is an organ that has its own microbiota. So there's the natural balance of you probably heard about it at school with gut flora or um, in your fingertips, fingertip flora, you know, when you'd say, oh, there's bacteria mm -hmm. and your fingerprints unique to you. Everyone's got living organisms that surround their body. It's the largest organ, the skin. And of course, any amount of stress, day-to-day -day life, it's not always directly linked to diet. It could be everything else you're going through, which then means the symptom is the food you're consuming isn't helping that stress and that aspect of your life, those different changes. So the best thing I could say for skin, because as you said, you've cut out dairy, which for some people can be a trigger, not for all. There's, you know, conflicting research as with everything out there in the nutritional science world. The main thing I'd say is getting omega-3 in your diet, vitamin A, which helps turnover of skin. But essentially, a good dermatologist and a Mediterranean-style diet is probably the safest thing I could say without getting to chat to you more about your individual, you know, dietary requirements. God, that was impressive. Yeah, I, I mean, threw you, that at you, you Rihanna. You had no you, idea. There was no, <laughs> was no kind you. of sending in the question earlier. Well done, Rihanna. <laughs> Excellent. More than proving your worth. Right. This is a topic I want to discuss today. Um, and I have given you a heads up on this because it can be because of all kinds of reasons. Um, we can call it IBS, flatulence, bloating, um, a bit gassy, whatever you want. But um, you hear a lot of people, not just, not just uh, women in midlife, but um, a lot of men start kind of uh, also complaining of being, you know, a bit feeling a bit bloated, you feel a bit gassy. Um, is it all about consuming foods in the wrong, either the wrong foods or, you know, combining the wrong foods? Is this something that can change? You mentioned gut biome there. Is this something that can change as we get older? So we could suddenly become um, not necessarily allergic to, but intolerant of certain food groups. And if that is the case, would you recommend people eliminating things? Uh, you know, is it worth paying money to, to go on and get a test? Uh, how would you start? Right. So for a lot of your listeners, just there's two main types of bloating you'll experience. I think a lot of some can be just pure volume of, you know, fluids and build up, which causes the intestine to kind of stretch. And then you get that bloated kind of appearance. Um, Actually, there's probably three types. The second would be more what I've discussed with Elizabeth just now and linking to other factors that then come. Bloating often affects the diaphragm. So your gut-brain axis, you're quite stressed out. Diaphragmatic breathing changes. The diaphragm becomes a bit inflamed, that muscle area, which gives a protruding bloat. But the other um, main aspect is probably the fact that I'd say that dietary changes occur. Your gut microbiome as you age changes. Now, this is the really interesting science. Guts, gut health science is the newest, most exciting area in my field. I mean, everybody in, in my science world is talking about it. Um, and I must caveat that we need a lot more research to conclusively say anything. But it's fascinating. As we age, as estrogen drops, as different changes happen in female bodies and male bodies too, the microbiota changes. And this means foods that perhaps suited your body when you were younger 
now suddenly you may be more sensitive to. Now bloating in that case is caused by fermentation of carbohydrates or fibre within the gut, which again causes that inflamed sensation. It can also be a side effect bloating of constipation and diarrhoea. So if you're not eating enough fibre as you age, that is a huge factor. But equally, if you suddenly introduce it, that can cause bloating too. Um, so to answer your question about intolerance kits and things, we don't have the data yet that they're all very accurate. We know for lactose intolerance, you can definitely get good results. Um, celiac disease is an extreme. Some people with IBS, very difficult to find out and pinpoint exactly. So an elimination diet for your listeners, if with a health professional is probably the safest route to go down. But remember, as we age, our gut motility slows as well. Mm. Just talking about fiber, can I jump in on that? Because mm. um, a lot of people go fiber, that's that's whole grain bread or that's pulses and you know this, and people then feel like, oh, I don't want to increase carbohydrate consumption. Where am I getting, where is the best, most condensed form of fiber? There's actually hundreds of types of fiber. It's not just insoluble and soluble, like we were all led to believe in mainstream media. There are so many types now that we know. And often it's going right back to your fruit, your veg, your legumes, and um, legumes and pulses. So legumes are kind of like the um, the bean pod, eating the whole pod with mm-hmm. the beans inside, whereas the pulses mm-hmm. is taking the beans so out. So a mange too. You got it, yeah, a mange too. I think that's the perfect example for that one. And it's, in, it's including more of those items in our food, which to be mm-hmm. honest, in today's society is just going down. These figures of people mm. consuming these whole food items, I call them whole foods. It's not just carbohydrates, it's the whole picture. Although carbohydrates are still a brilliant source, swap your normal whole grain bread to rye bread, you're getting even more texture and even more depth mm-hmm. of different seeds and pulses within your bread. So leaving the skin on an aubergine, that kind of thing, is this what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Skin on veg, Gabby. You know your stuff. That's, right, so that's okay. the best way, I think. Potato skin on, all of it. I'm just, you're just lazy potato. when I cook. I just I just leave it all on. Uh, leave it all on because right. it's a lot, lot easier. Um, yeah. and, and so is, is, is it something that you notice with clients who come to see you then in, once they reach a certain age then, that they start feeling oh. like they're becoming more intolerant? Absolutely, absolutely. Gut sensitivities arise. And it's such a difficult area in in nutritional practice, because like I said, we don't have the toolkits that are going to be spot on. We know it's not 100% accurate. And the problem is they're also extremely expensive if you go down that route. And not all of them are valid. There's so many on the market that I have clients that have come to me that have taken so many false Um, sadly pseudoscientific tests that have told them they're intolerant to everything and then they're scared to eat and remember food is psychological as well Gabby so you know you're going for a hard time anyway in midlife there's lots of different changes in your body on top of that you've got that subliminal stress and pressure which is then impacting your gut microbiome which is also changing as we age anyway you need lots of antioxidants in your diet as well it's all a knock-on effect it's a wheel everything clicks into place mm. more fluids and I guess bringing us right back round to the start of the the chat I've had with Elizabeth was we we're talking about cleansing friendships uh, you know you you change and habits kind of form quite hard yeah. don't they and people get attached to foods it becomes a habit doesn't it this is the breakfast I have this is what I eat for lunch though I, I've always had this for you know so uh, so it's having the I guess the the, the bravery to, to make those changes and break your habits even when it comes to food Rhiannon diversity is the gift of um a gift of life I think with food it's the spice the gift of life of the that's gut. the phrase <laughs> yes the gift of the gut <laughs> absolutely if anybody can just add one new item of food every week you're winning that's add in add in is the mentality I want people to think here not take out but thank you so much for your time today. I hope that has helped ease the, the gaseous uh, complaints of, uh, of some of our midlife listeners. Um, I, d- I don't need to hear, by the way, guys. You don't need to text me or um, let me know on social media. Um, I'll trust that it's working. Uh, thank you, Rhiannon. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Yes, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Just food and friendships. Have a little look. Just pre- prep it up a little bit and um, make some changes, Elizabeth. <laughs> I, I thought that was a seamless link and that's why you're <laughs> an incredibly gifted broadcaster. <laughs> so so are you, in terms of, um, you look very healthy. Is, is eating Thanks. well something that comes naturally to you? Yes, I'm very lucky in that I was raised by a brilliant mother who loved vegetables and salads and... I genuinely love both those things and it's because they were always on the table and it was never seen as something you had to eat but something you got to eat and my friends will take the piss out of me because 
when I, when we go out for a restaurant meal, I will always pick the aubergine. I'll always pick the thing that they're least likely to pick on the menu because I genuinely love vegetables. I do eat a lot of vegetables and I drink an enormous amount of water. And I, again, I always have. And then I think I grew up in Northern Ireland where there was barely any sunshine. So I also, my skin benefited from that. So for all of those reasons, I'm quite lucky, I think. Do you um, pop a vitamin D? Yes, I do. I started doing that properly during the pandemic. Me because, too. Yeah, yeah. And mm. I've just, and I've kept with that. Mm. And I now have an, a really good multivitamin where I've checked all of the, how much they have of each thing. I take an athletic greens shake oh, in the yeah. morning, yeah. which is meant to be very good for the gut. And I take probiotics and like intimate flora mm-hmm. probiotics and actually, Rhiannon's just reminded me that I need to get back on the omega-3 because I was taking that and then I ran out and I didn't reorder it. So I'm going to start doing that along with vitamin A. Okay. And what about exercise? I love exercise. And it's something that um, at school, because I was never very good at team sport, as previously chatted about, I thought I didn't like exercise and that was wrong. And when I, in my 30s, started doing fertility treatment, it was almost like I wanted to reclaim my physical self. And I started finding forms of exercise that I love. So I love spin classes. I've got a Peloton. Um, I'm unhealthily obsessed with the Peloton. I do, uh, so I do spin, I do yoga, and I've just started doing strength training once a week with an amazing trainer called Luke Worthington. And I love it. I really, I'm surprised, I'm taken aback with how much I love it. And I think it's partly because I can see the gains and that's really important for my, my motivation. So yeah, exercise is tremendously important and I try to do some exercise at like once a day, five days a week. Yeah, strength strength is so important at this this period of life, you know, for bone density, but it's had such historically this this idea that you're gonna suddenly turn into, you know, Miss Universe and pop muscles everywhere is just such a fallacy. You've got to be lifting enormous weights, you know, and and on a really ridiculous high protein diet and be focused so much if you want to actually become, you know, Miss Universe or the strongest woman in the world. It's it's really quite um powerful that that myth is dismissed because it's so important for, for midlife certainly to be on the old um the old weights. I love it as well. And it's it's the only kind of slight I'm fifty this year and the only slightly depressing thing is that um, um, it's apparent that I'm I'm maintaining my strength rather than increasing yeah. it massively over time. Although I did I did start lear- I learned to do um, pull ups a few years ago, so that wow. felt like a big improvement. First of yeah. all, you look absolutely amazing, and that's an inner beauty and an outer beauty. Oh. And I want to thank you for redefining what fifty looks like. Oh, that's number one. <laughs> Secondly, I also I've noticed my peloton output it's just so it's like plateauing and I was like why is that my husband was like it's age I was like oh that's so depressing to me I know I think you've got to be really you've got to kind of almost have an athlete's kind of schedule if you want to start seeing those gains in our stage Mm. of life and I'm not sure I want that mindset anymore you know it's too um you have to exclude so many other things in life and I think it's all about balance so I, I kind of feel like I want to keep doing the things that I do but I also want to have a glass of wine or I want to be able to stay up late occasionally I don't want to feel like I'm living a monastic existence I had a trainer a few years ago who it all got too serious and I had to wear a glucose monitor <laughs> I was like I hate no, monitors I'm yeah. not going I'm not in the Olympics we can we can just have, have a rest here for a bit and and as we enter kind of these you know these years with kind of other things other health issues that start to kind of you know bubble up I think just being fit and strong and healthy and being able to kind of cope with what what comes in the next few years to our bodies is just so important so it sounds like you're on a really good track there Elizabeth thank you well it it works for me and I think also because I spend so much time in front of my laptop in my own head it's incredibly important mentally for me to connect with my body so that's the other reason that I I do it yeah, and when you have quite a sedentary, not sedentary life, but when you All are right. sitting, no, but I know when I was when I was writing and I'm doing podcasting, I feel like I'm sitting down more, you know, know. And you really got to make yourself get up, haven't you, and get those steps in. And um, Elizabeth, it's been so lovely chatting to you and garnering your wisdom. I think I feel like we, um, the Midpoint listeners, have benefited from all those years that you've been taking the best of, of people's failings and processing them, and also uh, your take on on midlife friendship and friendship generally. Actually, has been really insightful so thank Thank you so so much thank you so much for having me i've loved this conversation as well it's just been so wonderful chatting to you and wonderful hearing what rhiannon has to say i found it so nice i wanted to go on all day so thank you very very much for having me anytime come back again sometime 
What a generous, interesting and utterly fabulous woman Elizabeth Day is. Such a thought-provoking discussion about friendships. I didn't really see that coming. And the differences between men and women when it comes to hanging on to people and the guilt that women feel, which I, I think is a real thing. And maybe there is a time when you just need to have a little friendship clean out, as brutal as that sounds. Also, her honesty about her fertility issues and how she'll probably learn to live with her grief as opposed to ever totally conquer it and move on was powerful and I'm sure will resonate with a lot of people. And if you loved her, as I'm sure you did, you'll want to check out her How to Fail podcast and her brilliant books. Rhiannon, as always, was a great font of knowledge. If you haven't checked out her book, The Science of Food, I suggest you do. It is a must-have. And if you're experiencing any bloating or any of the symptoms she was talking about, her advice to try eliminating foods one group at a time seems like a very good and inexpensive place to start. Thank you to Spiritland Productions for getting this podcast out to you and to you for listening. Ta-ra! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.